All right, hello, and welcome back to the Axe and Politics. This is season two. We're kicking off our winter quarter here at Stanford. We got a great interview later on with a Stanford student who voted for Trump, so stay tuned for that. But in the meantime, I'm Lucas. And I'm Ben. And we're just going to talk to you guys a little bit about what's been going on since we last saw you. So, um, obviously, Donald Trump was inaugurated as president recently. His inauguration speech is a talking point of interest, to me at least. I felt as if the speech was very much a campaign speech, not really an inaugural address to the whole country. He painted this really bleak, decrepit picture of the country, which wasn't very optimistic. He said this American carnage must stop, which I found sort of hyperbolic and unnecessarily so. Yeah, and I mean, and to the extent that it informs the politics, um, one wonders whether coming off this election where he did literally win with minority support after winning the primaries um, as a kind of constant plurality candidate, his own framework and the, the framework that he'll be operating from as he enters the presidency is that he can still win battles without having to unite people. I mean, the, the big note in this inauguration, of course, is that he did not strike a conciliatory tone which would have been really patently off-brand for him. I think entering the presidency, his vision is to continue fighting, even if from a, from a minority point, uh, even though Republicans maintain a, a majority in both houses of Congress, um, and to push through his vision by leveraging the momentum that he and his movement have, even if they remain smaller than everyone else. Um, they, they don't see a place for or a reason for uh, trying to build a majority. Yeah, I agree. And I think his White House will be sort of in that constant campaign state where he's still tweeting to the people, still strongly, strongly appealing to that core base, even though they are a minority of people that got him to where he is today. Yeah, and I mean, it does get at the heartstrings of, you know, guys like us Obama people. because for all of his uh, impact, Obama was a pretty patently bad communicator, right? For example, take the Affordable Care Act. I, th- I think part of the phenomenon of people voting against the Affordable Care Act, as much as it helps them, is the Obama administration's failure, and I'm not the first person to articulate this, to really convey what the Affordable Care Act is and does and the ways that it would help people. He focused instead on the policy itself. Now, if the Trump administration should focus more on messaging than on policy, what may really break the hearts of liberal types is that they may also then effectively make people feel as if great policy is being enacted without necessarily doing so. Or at least, and this is what Trump is great at, have a very effectively, an an excuse that effectively lands, right? No matter what happens, he'll always have some argument for why it wasn't his fault. The question will be whether people believe him, and I worry that they will. Yeah, I think that's a great point. The Republicans hijacked the ACA message from the Democrats, sort of swept it up from right under their feet. They didn't, before they even realized what happened, it was too late. That, you know, the term Obamacare came from the Republicans, did not come from the Democrats. And for all of Obama's, you know, spectacular orating, he's a once in a generational type orator. Really, all of his speeches were fantastic to watch. He was not good at communicating policy, in my opinion, like Ben said. And Trump's a brand guy. You know, he develops these brands. He's, he's successfully developed a strong brand over the course of the campaign. And as long as he continues doing that, his base will see nothing wrong. Yeah, something I've been thinking about a lot is this. Uh, with regard to that messaging, the narrative that the Dems have been focusing on recently 
um, is not that Trump's overall policy package is necessarily bad. I mean, they've argued that, but it's not really the centerpiece of what they're talking about. What they're talking about right now is, of course, you know, the racist, misogyny stuff, but then also um, his inability to deliver the things that he has promised. So it seems that they're focusing more on the fact of him being very rich and having this very rich cabinet than in the policies that they are looking to enact, which I think will uh, put the Democrats in a, in a very specific place because they will arrive at saying, come 2022, uh, 2020, if we're to look out that far, these Republicans have failed to deliver these things that you guys like, like greater trade protection, greater health care access, etc. We are the people who can deliver it. They are just billionaires who have fleeced you and are out to look for themselves. But the thing is that uh, that in includes the Democrats not necessarily disagreeing with those policies. Now, I don't think that the Dems are going to enact protectionism on the, uh, or to argue for it in the way that Trump has. But it will provide them a framework for a more Bernie-type character, right? It does show institutional mo- momentum toward this kind of nationally-oriented, socialist-ish policy vision. One could imagine, for example, the Dems coming out in 2020 and saying, hey, these Republicans told you they were going to help you. They actually just refu- repealed the Affordable Care Act um, in a way that, that helped them out. We instead are going to deliver health care access for all with universal health care, something along those lines where... The, the Dems will leverage not the the policies, but the Republicans' failure to enact them to work toward their own vision, but a vision that is very different from, for example, the 90s Dems. Mm-hmm. I think that is certainly a very dangerous game to play. I mean, as you said, Ben, just a couple minutes ago, Trump is a man who can always come up with an argument for why something wasn't his fault. And so... When you have a resistance built on this idea that let's show the base how the man that they so adore failed them, then that man is just so good at sort of beyond logic, beyond reason, convincing his base that he didn't fail them, that some other high elite institution, whether it be the media or the Congress or what have you, they're the, that was the real reason behind his failure, not him himself. So it's a dangerous game, but let's talk a little bit more about the, the Demo- how what what the Democrats prioritize from here specifically in the Congress? We talked a little about the, about the ACA. I think with the Affordable Care Act, they sort of have two options, and it can go one of two ways. They can let the Republicans repeal the ACA. Twenty million will lose their insurance. You've all heard the narrative, I'm sure. And then they come back four years. They say, "Look what happens when they repeal the ACA. Bad things happen. Let us go back into power so we can restore what was once there." problem with that, in my opinion, is that you have 20 million people losing insurance. Like, ethically, do you want to let yourself have all these people just lose their health insurance? Do you want to mount a very significant resistance to this one policy issue? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, of course the first 100 days are going to be dominated by the Affordable Care Act. Um, uh, Yesterday, Friday, um, when Trump first stepped into the office, he signed this very broad um, executive order um, ordering all executive, um, all cabinet agencies, mostly HHS, um, to ease the burden of the Affordable Care Act, which is perfectly on brand with, wh- with what we've been talking about, right? First, um, the the outsized focus on health care, and then second, the focus on messaging, right? I mean, it, it, it's almost a substance-free executive order, um, though I'm sure Tom Price, when he is confirmed, will use it uh, in all kinds of fun ways. But, um, yeah, I, if, if we think that 
he's going to focus on anything but healthcare, I would say he hasn't given any any indication uh, to evidence that view. But that puts the Dems in an interesting position to talk again about the politics, right? The If they can force Trump to overplay his hand and they can force him to put all his chips on health care and then they can stop the ACA from being repealed, um, they've already probably accepted that with Republican control of HHS, the bill is going to be mangled, it won't be implemented fully, it won't be implemented at all. But if they can win the symbolic victory of preventing a full repeal of the ACA, which could only really happen through budget reconciliation, so I mean that's anybody's game, uh, whether or not that will happen, then they can force him to expend much more political capital than he might like, already coming in as an unpopular president, his approval's at like 36, um, last I looked, um, and then they would have the next kind of three years to build a position, or even the next year to build a position toward the midterms, and then toward 2020. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Another interesting strategy for the Dems is I think Schumer really needs to recognize that the Republicans are in a coalition government with the Trumps. And by the Trumps, I mean those Republicans in Congress that really side very strongly with the commander-in-chief, the new commander-in-chief, that is. And so what we have right now in our government is sort of three separate parties. Four, if you think there's a riff in the Democratic Party. There's the Democrats, which obviously they're trying to mount their their resistance. There's, you know, typical Republicans or Republicans of sort of the McCain's, the Romney's, they're obviously, um, Romney's obviously not in office, but Republicans of that breed. And then there are the, the Trumps. And so Schumer has to realize that his ability to resist Trump's agenda will hinge on his ability to enact bargains, strike deals with those wary Republicans. And that's going to mean giving up some policy things to those wary Republicans in order to accomplish this larger goal of, you know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Yeah, but I think what that gets at um, is something that we underestimate, which is how Tea Party-ish the far left is in America. Um, I call them the far left, which I guess, you know, shows some of my partisan cards. But look, my vision of uh, the political landscape in America right now, or at least as it uh, pertains to elected officials, is that you have Bernie-type Democrats. I'm looking, um, thinking, for example, about like Bernie and Keith Ellison, uh, maybe Sherrod Brown. Warren, if you kind of put her in there, but not yeah, really. Yeah, Liz is probably more to the Bernie side. Then you have the more institutional Democrats. You have like a, a Booker. Um, a Schumer, Pelosi. A Schumer, Pelosi. Then I would argue you you put a vision out of two different Republicans. I actually think there's three different brands of Republicans. Um, I would say you've got like your Paul Ryan kind of country club classic, you know, pro-growth types. Um, you've got your Ted Cruz constitutional evangelical types, um, and then you've got your Trump types. Now, here's an interesting thing, though. Um, those three disagree fundamentally on a number of issues, whereas the Dems, the two kinds of Dems I pointed out, as I think existing before, um, just agree disagree on uh, scale and on timing, right? So, like, all Dems, I think, I think Hillary Clinton even, would be totally in favor of universal health care. She just disagrees with whether it's politically feasible, whether it's economically, fiscally uh, feasible, um, whereas Republicans now disagree completely on any set of issues. I mean, take trade, for example. Like, Paul Ryan and Donald Trump have virtually opposite visions of trade, whereas um, I think Hillary and Bernie 
uh, do have very different views, right? Bernie, of course, being much more protectionist, Hillary being much more in favor of free trade, but that they would be much more willing, not just willing to find common ground, but that there is common ground that um, does actually exist within uh, their policy visions. Ben, what you just described gets at something that's for me as a, as a, you know, a student studying political science in my years of college, which is going to be really exciting, for lack of a better word, is to see how this all sorts itself out. I mean, we could be on the verge of sort of one of the major resorting of the parties, something we haven't seen since the 60s even, maybe when the, when the Democrats adopted the civil rights agenda and the conservative um, Democrats flipped to the Republicans. You know, we talk so much about partisanship, polarization, all that stuff, and these parties could resort themselves in dramatic different ways to the point where we get to 2020 and we could see party platforms that look vastly different from what we saw in just now in 2016. Yeah, I think it was over the summer. Um, There was an article in Politico, I don't remember who wrote it, uh, but they argued that there's going to be a reshuffling where the Dems would become kind of the the party of the intellectual class and of people who have like a more global worldview, whereas the Republicans would be the party of the working class with a more nationalist worldview, specifically dividing along trade, so people who are now... Republicans who really probably deep down don't really care that much about religion or social issues uh, who are much more pro-growth would become the Dems and then current Dems who are much more protectionist uh, and believe in much, I guess, more labor protection would become conservative, would become Republicans. Um, I don't think we're seeing that, but it is early. Um, What I think is going to happen is that the Dems are going to shift left and then the Republicans are basically going to be uh, forced to ask what happened. Um, but I could be entirely wrong. For example, I think that Democrat dependence on minority votes is going to fracture. I think, for example, I mean, 30% of Latinos voted for Trump. A lot of different uh, nationalities within this kind of umbrella that we talk about in political conversation of Latinos are very conservative. Um, the American South has been divided along abortion pretty handily. And for a lot of Catholic Latinos, abortion's a really big issue. And a few generations down the road, uh, that will be much more pressure, uh, much more uh, in, f- in the front of the mind than perhaps nationality. Um, and the same goes with Asian nationalities, right? Um, you can look at the differences um, within this umbrella of Asian, right? So like South Asians actually supported Trump in much more larger numbers than we might have expected. Um, so I do think there's going to be something of a fracturing of the Dems, uh, that is going to really put them in a weird place. I mean, we were, may remember in 2008 that they were saying, yeah, the demographics are on our side. We've got Latinos. They are this growing demographic. We are going to be set for decades. And now we have a Republican president. So we'll see mm-hmm. where that goes. Yeah, there are huge swaths of those minority populations that remain unaffiliated. Mm-hmm. You have upwards of 30%, 35% even, that don't see themselves fitting into either the Democratic or the Republican mold. And that's a body of the electorate that's A, growing, and B, remains to be captured. And so to see what either of these coalitions does to maybe get that vote could be a big difference maker down the line. But I think that just about about wraps it up um, in terms of sort of how we've made sense of these last couple weeks. Stay tuned for an interview coming up with a Stanford student who voted for Trump and hear some of his thoughts. Thanks.
All right, so I'm here in the studio with Jay Reader. He's a senior here at Stanford, and he voted for Trump in this past election. So we're just going to interview him, ask him about his background, a couple of his thoughts on, you know, campus's reaction to the election and such. Jay, nice to have you. Yeah, thank you for having me. Of course, yeah. Thanks so much for coming in. So like I said, like, let's just get started a little bit with your background here. What would you say are the key sort of events or people or sort of life moments that have really sort of created your political outlook? Well, honestly, a lot has shifted this past cycle. I actually voted for Bernie in the primary and made that jump over to Trump, which is a long discussion in itself. So I'd say the primary cycle and going through that process really had an impact in terms of how I perceive the the two-party system, the the idea of the establishment, and you know now we talk about draining the swamp and things. But as a whole, you know, I was a liberal. I went to uh, I went to a John Edwards rally in two thousand four with my mom, kind of, of course, thing. Yeah. You know? So for me, you know, I see I I, I was on board with. Um, sort of liberal ideology, I guess. And, you know, in the end, what I, I, I just looked because they cheated and WikiLeaks showed that. And, you know, we're sort of in a fat post-factual world. Whether or not you want to believe WikiLeaks is a matter of opinion. But for me, from what I've seen from the primary cycle, what we saw from the Democratic Convention, uh, what, I'm, a, I'm a Redditor. Right. So the the Sanders for president subreddit came out during the, the Democratic primary. And then once Bernie was out, it just stopped. They just ended it, which was really strange. There's no reason to do that. I mean, we could still talk about the ideas mm-hmm. and the movement. Mm-hmm. And, you know, these are these are user run forums. Right. When it took away my community, I, I looked. That's what yeah. it came down to. I went over to r slash the Donald. Right. The underscore Donald, which is the Donald Trump subreddit. And I looked and I looked at our politics, which is it's really interesting. You can going back and forth between the two and seeing how each side, which is strange because it's our politics, which is supposed to be neutral, but it's really just two sided. And now r slash all, which is where all the subreddits just filter into one you know, big pot and is considered the front page of the Internet. They've changed the algorithm on that three or four times over the past six months to because of r slash the Donald's popularity. So it sort of turned me on to these ideas of yeah. like of the possibility that there is are some insidious motives behind these things. And it sounds crazy. And I know it sounds crazy and I think about that every day. I mean, this must sound crazy to yeah. be in this position. Every, you know. Yeah, so yeah. I think one so one interesting thing that I found about Bernie Sanders' candidacy really awakened a lot of people yeah. to politics, really brought a lot of people who weren't in the sphere before into the game, which Absolutely. is incredible. And that's sort of a nature of the populist candidates, Trump being one himself. Would you say you've always been pretty politically active, or were you very turned on by this political revolution that Bernie started and that sort of populist appeal sort of transitioned you on to Donald Trump? I would say, I mean, I'm young, right? Yeah. This is my second election cycle. I wouldn't say I was super politically active. Okay. I've been in, I went to uh, New England prep school. I went to Andover. We had a lot of social justice movements um, coming to the fore and coming to prominence um, before I even came to Stanford. So I was in high school. So I saw a lot of that. I saw a lot of the talking points that are, and the narratives that sort of surround this campus now. Um, But I wasn't really, they didn't really 
it wasn't political. Mm-hmm. Really. We were high schoolers, yeah. right? And at Stanford, you know, this is the first real election cycle. So I'm not a huge politics guy, but I, I got to, I'm just calling it like I see it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and of course, uh, you're going to go out and vote. So. And I'm going to go out and vote. And, you know, it, it just turns out, I guess I'm the super minority here. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I see injustice. I, we've talked about this in the lead up to this interview, how concerned you were about my anonymity, feeling safe, feeling protected on both sides. The fact that we have to have these kind of, you know, that we have to think this way yeah. is a huge problem. Yeah, of course. It's a huge problem. My mom shouldn't be scared about me talking about these things. Yeah. Right. From both sides. Whatever. It's just terrible to think that that's the position. That it's broken down in that sense. Yeah, I yeah. agree. So, so you've become sort of recently politically active, you know, with this first big election at Stanford. Are there any sort of issues that you that are really big for you yeah. that are sort of define your vote or? Trade was huge for me. And that was a huge decision for me with going with Bernie in the first place. He was against the TPP. There's the three T's of trade, meant to isolate China, globalist ideal. Um, The TPP, which is the Trans-Pacific Partnership, TISA, the Trade and Services Act, and the TIPP, which I forget the name with, but is European Yeah, it's the European version that's on the horizon or was on the horizon. Mm -hmm. And I I was hugely against these trade deals. So we've talked about it. I've worked in global manufacturing for the past two internships. Very cool. Um, one of them, I did workforce analysis for the various countries we operate in. You know, that really, from like a product side, and I'm a product design major, We, you know, from a product side, the, the trade deals that were being presented were, were just, they were biting off so much. You know, they're doing these roundtable-style trade deals rather than just bilateral talks. And I just, I personally don't see it. I also, when Trump starts saying, you know, we're going to tax you for, uh, for autos, and I'm looking at it and saying, yeah, the U.S. makes autos and Mexico makes autos, but they have a lower wage standard, so that's, and we want to protect that industry. Sure, but let China make cell phones. Mm-hmm. Right. And mm-hmm. let them import them for free. Right. Mm-hmm. Go product by product, figure out which country is best suited for which product. And, you know, trade doesn't have to be a win lose. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, so how can we find that balance point? But for me, I mean, there was that. And then there's the money and politics side of it. Of course. A huge thing for with Bernie's campaign was, you know, we need to we need to get the cash out of the system. We need to, end, you know, end this establishment stranglehold, you know, Bush, Clinton, Obama, Clinton kind of idea. And to see him take $200 million from voters and when, and then just give in to the epitome of an establishment candidate, somebody who's been in that system for 30 years, who is literally the Clinton dynasty, yeah, right? Of course. You know, all the talk about the Clinton Foundation, billions coming from Saudis, from everywhere, the issues in Syria and Benghazi, I mean, the pardon of Mark Rich and the end of the Clinton administration. To see him just get off the get off the message so quickly and turn around was I, I don't It was like betrayal. How, it's it was betrayal, like hurtful. Yeah. yeah, yeah, of course. How are you supposed to feel about that yeah. when when you know the the narrative that he created had really painted Clinton as this person who is who's mm-hmm. the epitome of everything we're fighting against mm-hmm. and then he's saying no go vote for her yeah 
So we talk about a yeah. defining moment in the election season, the campaign season. You're, you would say the DNC, you know, Bernie coming out, yeah. doing his little speech, whatever he does. That's really a big moment that turns the fold yeah. to and Donald. If, and if we're going to talk about WikiLeaks and all of that, the five in a row, they ha- they replaced the, 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 I think it was the CEO of the DNC four yeah. times because of the because of the leaks because uh-huh. they were giving questions to Hillary during the for the for the primary debates you know yeah. things like that things like that just sort of turn you away from the democratic party it made me look yeah okay so it made me look yeah. right and i fortunately had the benefit of being able to go and like look at what's what's donald what's donald's community exactly. right? in this sort of reddit bubble uh-huh. as a starting point which was a a, a really interesting Experience, of course, right, and and sort of, it was uncomfortable, right? Yeah, the aesthetics of it are rough, right? Uh-huh. Kind of like him. He, he, the aesthetics of a speech are New Yorker and bravado mm. and very very simplistic sounding, but the the for all the noise, the signal that I was getting out of that seems much more. It was it seems genuine, honestly, to me. Yeah. Certainly more so than Clinton did, of course, right. I'd say her also, I was genuinely surprised that the deplorable and irredeemable line that she used to talk about Trump voters was picked up on as like a, 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 a good thing. I mean, that, that it, Mitt Romney's campaign got derailed over his 42% comment. Yeah. And for her to go out and say that, you know, most, the, the, most of the people voting for him are not only deplorable people, but they're irredeemable. Yeah. It's like, it, well, if, she, if we elect her, is she going to fight for me? Yeah, of course. He's saying, we're going to make America great again. We're going to put America first, unqualified. If you want to interpret it as going back to the 60s versus going back to the 2000s, you know, um, or that, or if you have an issue with, if you disagree with his opinion on illegal immigration, right, fine. Yeah. But she's the one that... And if you say most, I'm going to feel like I'm looped into that. Mm-hmm. You know, when polled, 65% of Californians think that most Trump voters are racist. Yeah. Right? Which is another sort of topic around yeah. bubbles and yeah, and, it's, just, it's, and dialogue. It's hurtful for sure. And I know, at least in my spheres, I thought that was a huge point of controversy in the campaign when she said that comment. You know, she was asked about it in the debates. She kind of deflected the comment. But let's go back to yeah. uh, Reddit. I want to ask you, you know, so it seems like Reddit sort of played a big role during your election season. What sort of news sources do you follow? Do you think you get most of your stuff online, social media? That's been another conversation that's been yeah. around this election, sort of the, the lead up and throughout the campaign season. What were you what were you looking at? When an event happens, you should read, you should, you should go and look for the spin, right? Mm-hmm. You should go try and find what the spin is, right? When... You know, when we're talking, like if we're talking about unemployment, right? One way you could spin it is you could say our unemployment rate is down. It's like four or five percent, right? But then another number, if you look at another number, it's oh well, medium income is declining and home ownership is through the floor, and you know those sorts of numbers. It, it workforce participation yeah, rate is down. participation rate, of course. Right. All these different economic sort of. And, and we're talking about the same thing. The America hasn't changed, but they draw two drastically different perspectives. Mm-hmm. And whenever a major event happens, like the Chelsea Manning commutation that happened last week, right? 
um, President Obama commutes Chelsea Manning's sentence, right? She was a whistleblower, mm-hmm. right? Um, and I was like, great, he's commuting the sentence. He, you know, this is great. He's going to let her go early. You know, she had a 28-year sentence. Now it's only seven years. You know, WikiLeaks, Julian Assange had said if he, if President Obama had granted her clemency, that he would turn himself in, yeah. right? Um, over charges that are not legal, but whatever. Another point. Um, so one part of it, one side says, "Oh, he this is great. Obama's you know like taking care of the system." Yeah. He had eight years. Chelsea Manning's been in the whole time. He yeah. had eight years to deal with this. Um, yeah. So the spins, the the different media bubbles, right? Why, like, when you commute a sentence? From my perspective, you're still saying she did it. You're creating a precedent where you can still prosecute over it, mm-hmm. right? Over that whistleblower. Mm-hmm. But in reality, you know, should she should she should she be pardoned? Is the yeah. question, you know? And that's that's maybe not a great example, but you know, there's two different perspectives. Yeah, of course. That. So it seems that sounds like as opposed to sort of reading opinion pieces or the like, you just take the facts from a generic fact source and then sort of just make of it what you will. There is no objective fact source out there. At some point, a person's writing it and people add their bias. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Whether it's whether it's malicious or not, mm. it's there, mm-hmm. right? Um, and that's sort of what I'm getting at. I look at the New York Times. I look at Washington Post. I see, I see, I see a bunch of BS, Yeah. right? I also see. I also say, look at who owns these papers, mm-hmm. right? Carlos Slim is the majority shareholder of the New York Times, right? He he will inevitably have an impact on their on their writers, right? Jeff Bezos owns Amazon, or he owns Am- Jeff Bezos, the owner of Amazon, bought the bought the Washington Post. People say, why would he do that, right? He's he owns Amazon. You know, he's he's got no competitors. Alibaba in the past week has said that they're going to invest a billion dollars in the U.S. and come into the U.S. market. The one comp- possible competitor to Amazon is now entering Amazon's market because of a Trump presidency. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, they, there's a lot. There, there's a lot going on in terms of motives that can drive, that can really affect the coverage, and a lot of it's about what's not said. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting when you're sitting on when you're you know browsing Reddit and you go on the Donald and you see, you know something about a new WikiLeaks release, right? And it's it's like it started feeling like clockwork after a while. You go to politics and they put up something that's surface, you know, a poll saying that Obama is the most admired man in the U.S., mm-hmm. which sounds like North Korean propaganda when you really think about it, yeah. <laughs> like, and. Yeah. And so, yeah. So these like these on yeah. So there's there's certain events that sort of the media is ignoring that you feel should be covered. Yeah, I'd say there's that part to it. I'd say that the fact that was it six companies own ninety percent of U.S. media is a huge Dude. problem. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, you know. And again, I think that's something that's really that these populist candidates have really this is this is the sentiment that they've tapped into that oh, yeah. they're yeah. So let's transition a little bit you know away from you and your personal views and maybe yeah. a little bit. To you know the man himself, yeah, the Donald. How have you felt about this transition period? You know, the uh, the cabinet picks. Have they? You know, are you surprised? Are you disappointed? Are you excited? First yeah. thoughts of just 
and um, and general you know feelings since the election happened. As far as cabinet picks, Mattis. I mean, he's a he's a Hoover he's a Hoover guy. Yeah, yeah. Right. I'm a huge fan of Mattis. I'm a, actually a, a. It took me a minute with like, for example, nuanced positions. Um, Tillerson is the Exxon exec, yeah. right? I'm not going to get into the oversight of conflicts of interest. I yeah, mean, yeah. John Kerry's spouse is the heir to the Heinz Corporation, mm-hmm. who has a $1.3 billion valuation. Yeah. So, yeah. You know, like, so, so those aside, like that the Tillerson. Aside, you know, he. we could go into the, is he going to drop his investments? And I'm pretty sure he did, but don't yeah. quote me on that. But here's a guy who has done business in 240 countries, who managed to get drilling permits in Russia during uh, san- during economic sanctions? If there is somebody that, as a Secretary of State, will be a- will be able to understand the global landscape and sort of navigate work con- that, yeah, yeah. and wor- and you know, this is all deal making, right? Mm-hmm. So to really work those countries in our- to to create deals that are in our interests, I think that he could really surprise people. Yeah, um, Jeff Sessions is going to follow the law. What, I know that's up to interpretation, but I think he'll be great, honestly. So now let's let's transition to campus. I think this will be yeah. probably the most unique part of this interview. So for those listeners who probably maybe are not as familiar with our campus, it's, it's pretty left-leaning, pretty liberal. It's been a very tense period since the election. It's been sort of a very tense environment around campus. The day after the election was very mood in the air that you could feel, you know? Yeah, um, I mean, I went to a grieving session. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. so let's talk about that. What were your expectations coming sort of to, around campus yeah. post-election as a Trump voter, supporter? So I was surprised just as much as anyone. I thought that just, I thought they were going to rig it, right? Uh-huh. You don't have voter ID in California. You've got board electors talking about busing people around in New York, you know, um, so I was just as surprised. The media was totally caught off guard, right? Um, and I went to the, there was a f- Trump rally. So fuck Trump rally the night of the election. And I was, and I went, I wore my hat, wore it backwards, stood in the back. I just wanted to watch and understand like what this meant to people. And what really surprised me was the, the it wasn't so much anger as it was like genuine grieving, genuine loss. Mm-hmm. You know, it was like a wake. It was like going to someone's funeral. There are real feelings. It was it was yeah very powerful. It, I mean, it were, were people were. I mean, and the yeah people were genuinely concerned about safety. You know, uh-huh. about what's going to happen to my undocumented relative. Right mm-hmm. for anyone who has a personal connection to to to. Um, Someone who's undocumented. So yeah, there's a lot. There was a lot of emotion. I, I for me, uh, it was surprising. At, um, but then when you think about it, we we take these movements, we take these these topics, and and we put so much emotional investment to them that when it doesn't go our way, yeah, it's, it is genuine loss. Mm-hmm. And so I, I really. Uh, I can un- I can understand that perspective. And yeah. what for me though was concerning out of it, and sort of feeds into a larger picture in my opinion of campus, is we'll get up and we'll be angry and protest over climate change and Black Lives Matter and you know da- no dapple and things that are national movements, not necessarily directly affecting Stanford. Don't get me wrong, they're important. Right, they're, they're people, and people put a ton of emotional investment and, and time into these movements. But when 
the band gets banned, and that's something that like everyone loves mm-hmm. directly affects the community. Yeah, like feels tot- seems totally unjust. It com- comes off as very very totalitarian. And we couldn't get together and just have a party outside of outside of the provost's office, mm-hmm. right? Like, what were they gonna do? Ban the band again? Mm-hmm. You know, and it doesn't even have to be angry. Let's just have a party, play some drums, and have mm-hmm. a good time. Show people what Stanford is about, which is that it's not MIT. Yeah. To, so sorry, more, MIT, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so more like a more sort of the band is something that unifies sort of all Stanford students across. Yeah, and it's and it's here, and it's tangible, and it's you've got friends in it, and yeah, you've got yeah. people's what people have invested their four years of their Stanford career in. You know, you got your academics, your your extracurricular, and like your third thing, right? Yeah. You know, for so many people, that like the band has been you know a, a, a home for them, a mm-hmm. community that doesn't care about any uh, about identity, right? Mm-hmm. That that embraces the things that make Stanford great, which are, you know, being weird, mm-hmm. very you know, enigmatic, very doing yeah. things that are uncomfortable. And, and we're just sitting here and letting him take it. Mm-hmm. And the thing is is like I'm sitting here as a Greek, you know, Rome member and I'm saying this has been happening for 3 years. Yeah. This is Marxism. First, they came for the Greeks, and nobody comes into Greek houses except for parties, right? So it doesn't affect a ton of people. It's easy to say, "Oh, they're just white males." You know, they mm-hmm. they you know they must have done something wrong. You know, they're yeah, yeah. you know that th- we don't like their culture. But then when the hand that's delivering this says, "We don't like your culture," I mean, that what are you, who are you to say otherwise? Now, mm-hmm. you've given them that authority to say what is permissible in terms of social discourse. Yeah. So it sounds like you wish that action was sort of more directed to these more tangible issues. I think everyone's just got to take a second to breathe, take a step back and look at like what's really affecting them in the short term. Mm-hmm. Like what's what like in rugby, which I play, we talk about like you got the big picture, the game, you know, the score, getting, you know, the moves 10 down, 10, you know, 10 moves down. But what? But you gotta at some point read what's right in front of you, right? Mm-hmm. And take care of those ordinary things before you can, you know, think about doing the extraordinary. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I, I mean, that's so for me. It was I don't want to say disappointed, but I think um, we get caught up in these big movements. So so I do it too. I mean, I mean, I mean don't get me wrong. I'm I'm right up there with you all. Mm-hmm. But. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's just I've seen I've seen this campus change so much in four years, and um, not yeah, it, but it's it's such a temporary space that the people that really could make that change, um, and they're so overburdened with work, you know, it's tough. Yeah, I I, I I empathize with the fact that it didn't happen. Yeah, but at the same time, it sort of like point out like if we can get up and protest and you know shut down a highway over Mike Brown. Can we not have a party outside of uh, the president's office? Yeah. Like, is that too much to ask in uh-huh. some ways? And I'm yeah. not a band member, so and I don't want to speak for them, and I don't, and I've, and I have the utmost respect for the band. And if they don't want to get into it, fine. Yeah, of course. No, no dings to them. Mm-hmm. So you talked a little earlier about sort of the concerns with the anonymity and sort of making sure, you know, we, f- you feel safe doing this yeah. conversation and stuff. Um, I want to ask you if there are any sort of spaces on campus, any particular spaces where you felt okay, comfortable talking about these issues 
amongst a group of peers, whether that be in your house or maybe at any events organized by student organizations or by, you know, administration officials. Because I know after the election, you know, the Stanford powers that be organized some yeah. debrief sessions, if any at all, and sort of what that experience was like. Um, my house, uh, despite the fact that surprisingly my house has is almost entirely lined up against me. Really interesting. But, um, so I, but I do feel safe talking about my house. I think... It's been easier from I've been I felt comfortable having these conversations with people that I just know. So yeah. we have these conversations in the locker room at rugby. You know, there's been such a a and I I feel like I've, there's been such a dehumanization of the Trump voter that just like existing and like coming face to face with me is almost a jarring experience for the people when I do meet them. And what's interesting for me is that I talk about this stuff more here than I do at home, mm. right? People at home don't care. Like, they, they don't. It's not that they don't care. Don't get me wrong. They care. But they, it's just not what's important. And I think that's, it's not that it's not important. It's not, it's not as important to them as getting a job. Yeah, of course. You know, putting food on the table, you know, sports, right? Yeah. You know, because and these and these topics that we talk about on campus all the time now, you know, are so heavy. They're, we're talking about oppression. We're talking about, you know, institutionalized racism. You know, how do we deal with these things? Right? There's been a, there's been wrongs in history, but if we want to create doctrine to try and fix that now, we're just sending the pendulum the other way. You know, how do we move forward and sort of create balance? And yeah, we'll create balance. You know, and yeah. going one, going too far the other way is not going to fix that. But yeah, Stanford people are we're so turned on, you know, and we're and we're running so our minds run so fast, and we like to talk about this stuff because it matters. Um, but it's it's it yeah, there's it's it's taxing, yeah. right? And I yeah. Pe- pe- People, you don't have these conversations like we have. Like, we don't have these conversations in Minneapolis with, you know, people aren't thinking about gender identity, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And the one thing that I did get sort of out of it, especially, you know, I got a chance to talk to some people on the line this past summer where I was working. um, And a lot of them were like, yeah, I got to put food on the table. Mm -hmm. Like... This sort of gets in this idea of ordinary versus extraordinary. I look at what happened in this election is a lot of people saying, hold on, social justice is extraordinary. We, we, do, we agree, we, gotta, you know, we need to progress as a society, but we can't do that unless we're, we have a good economic foundation in the heartland, mm-hmm. right? And that was there the divide really, really split was um, urban versus rural voter. If we look at the maps, that that was really the split. Yeah, and then yeah, I'm sitting here and I'm told I'm white, I'm male, I'm privileged, right? I whether or not it's intended, I feel like I should feel bad about myself for who I am, mm-hmm. right? And if you're ta- and we're talking about these narratives and that you you know you're seeing them on your Facebook feed and you're, you see them in the New York Times and. You, know, you gotta imagine. You gotta imagine being like a welder or a coal miner who's barely scraping by. 
you know, or an assembler at an auto factory who's which has just announced they're exporting the jobs they, to they Mexico. Need to, they need to make ends meet. They yeah, they're not. They they're they're not worrying about yeah well, again what gender they are. Mm-hmm. They got they got to put food on the table. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. So yeah, you talked about how it's it's sort of easy to have these sort of conversations that you and I were just having with people yeah. you know. Have there been any any instances where you've sort of gone to an event where you knew you were not going to know almost anyone there, and you just and were any of these sort of conversations had, or has that opportunity never really arisen? Uh, I haven't, and maybe this is because I just don't haven't really looked. Yeah. So so I'm not going to place blame anywhere. I haven't really found them out. Um, what concerned me about the narrative, what concerns me about the safe spaces idea is that it is going, it, is, it has the potential to polarize this campus even further. When we're sitting, and I was watching the, the, the fuck Trump rally and people are coming up talking about how we've got safe spaces, you know, for you guys to like talk about these things and we've got space, safe spaces specifically for black people and I'm just looking at it and I'm saying, we're just separating out based on identity and ideology and things like mm-hmm. that. And it does sound like you desire a safe space where the conservative and the liberal and the different identities, whatever have you, can come and sort of just talk. Yeah. I, um, and, and I think that there has been good progress in that regards. I think that people... Just because of the fact that he won and not her, and it surprised so many people on this campus, and you're sitting there going, "All right, what did I miss?" You know, for people like you're, you guys came out and reached out to me and were saying, "Well, we want to hear your opinion. You have a unique opinion. We want to know what you were thinking about that made you vote this way." So I think that, yeah, dialogue. You know, it's inherently going to get there. Where. Where you run into trouble, though, is when, is again, this emotional investment and the fact that until we reconcile the parallel realities of Trump is Hitler versus Trump is a good person, like a lot of the talking points that that we get into these discussions about, um, and also the importance of social issues versus economic issues and where and how they should be weighed in deciding your political candidate. Um, until we reconcile some of those ideas first, um, or at least come to an understanding, a better understanding, we're going to be on totally different bases mm-hmm. for, for a lot of stuff. And that's not to say not to try. It's just to recognize that fake news is going both ways. You know, yeah. we unfortunately, and I know this gets into a lot of like really meta, you know, philosophical discussions, but post-truth, at least because of the current state of media, the current state of politics and what we've been, you know, what people have been seeing um, and the conclusions they've come to, yeah, as we've talked about, there's, even if I bring up the WikiLeaks emails, you, there's a doubt, you can always have that sort of reasonable doubt of, is this real? Yeah. You know, you know like, and that's a hard, it's a hard world to operate in. Right, and how do you prove something when you can't just say, well, here's the fact. Yeah, exactly. You know. Yeah, so I think we're just about wrapping up here. Maybe yeah. just a couple more questions for you. You sort of talked about this a little bit, but I wanted to know if, if sort of this post-election and, you know, voting the way you did, whatever, is, has that changed your day-to-day at all? Like your day-to-day life here at Stanford? Have you felt, sort of found yourself having more conversations about it? or? I'd say I see 
and this is a, not to go, this is a rabbit hole. I see ideological subversion a lot more. Mm-hmm. It's sort of a maybe it's a co- confirmation bias kind of thing. Not getting into that though. Um, as far as my day to day, not not particularly affected. Yeah. I think sort of like what I mentioned earlier is like I just don't want to talk about it anymore. Yeah, I'm tired of this. I think everyone's just tired, mm-hmm. and um, at some point we're just along for the ride now. Yeah, and don't get me wrong, we're gonna hold him accountable. If there's anything that's been more clear, it's that on both sides. Like I didn't look at him. I thought he was Hitler too. I didn't even look at him because I thought he was Hitler, and I only looked at him because. Yeah, the team that I was on, in my opinion, cheated and betrayed my trust. trust. Exactly. Right? So if he does the same to you, you know, his history it, shows if, that you will act the way... Yeah. If he goes beyond building the wall or tries to break up families with and goes with death squads, believe me, they, we will, I, I will flip in a heartbeat. Mm-hmm. But so far, this guy hasn't fallen. So let's give him a chance. Mm-hmm. We should... And this is going to sound crazy, but we should all hope that he does so well that America does so well that we vote him, that he wins in an absolute landslide in four years. We should honestly be hoping that. To say he's not my president, to say he's illegitimate, to fight him now that he has overcome 17 political candidates, the Clintons, you know, you got to give him a shot. Yeah. At some point. And that's where I sort of sit. Yeah. So final question, obviously, this might be, you might have just answered this final question. Um, If you could send one final message to the campus, to your peers, to the Stanford community, what would it be? Uh, Well, first of all, everyone just be happy and take a breather. It's going to be fine. Like, we're going to make it. Like, it's going to be fine. Um, Keep... um, driving at the issues that are important to you, right? Keep being passionate. I think that passion is really important. Um, I think empathy is um, always needed. Mm -hmm. Not that it's been particularly lacking, but I think that um, it gets a little caught up in all of it. I have another thing on my mind, but uh, yeah, and, and I think that's really what it comes down to is, you know, take a step back and he's, if he's got... Give him a shot is what it comes down to. I, I don't know how else to put it. I think you got to love each other a little bit more, and you got to stop thinking about each other in terms of categorization mm-hmm. and who are you. Mm-hmm. I, I've lived in the Midwest, in an East Coast prep school, and I came here. I left that East Coast prep school because who you are and your name mattered and your wealth mattered. Identity mattered um, and got in the way of meritocracy. And or, and when I came to Stanford, it was, you know, the West Coast narrative is always, it's always been, what are you doing? Not who are you? What are you doing? And what sort of saddens me is that we're back on these talking points of who are you, but in a totally different way where we're promoting victimhood and being oppressed and, um, you know, saying masculinity is sinful and aspects of masculinity are sinful, right? Um, but when you start thinking like that, where it's who has it worst, right? Who's been oppressed most? Everyone loses because you're just going downwards. It's a race to the bottom. 
Mm-hmm. So in the end, if we're going to really be in a post-racial society, get to that point, we got to at some point put it down. Um, Jay, thanks so much for thank, coming Yeah, thank in. you. Thanks. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for seeing that.